this morning I want to speak on a theme uh, in the New Testament, which is the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us to pray, let your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And the kingdom of God is a, a phrase which is only used in the New Testament. But I don't want you to think that it was something new that God had just dreamt up. I believe that the kingdom of God was used in the New Testament simply and purely because the king had come. But there are many little cameos in the Old Testament which shows the principle of the kingdom of God. And I want to look at one or two of those first because then we'll be able to have a look at how these cameos were a picture of what was going to happen in the new kingdom, in the kingdom which was established when Jesus came and is reported in the New Testament. First of all, uh, let's just have a look at the earliest incident, which is right back on page one of your, of your Bibles and two. Um, it's God in the Garden of Eden. Of course, he, uh, God had made the world and he made the Garden of Eden. He created Adam and, and Eve. And there he, he, he was in a relationship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He met with them there and things were really pleasant. Uh, Adam and Eve uh, communicated with God and things were great. That was until they were disobedient. You see, when God was there, he gave them some instructions. In fact, there was only a couple of instructions that they had to take notice of. They hadn't to eat of a particular tree. And when of God's word was disobeyed, then, of course, that perfection in the Garden of Eden ceased and they were cast out. Another little cameo that we see in the Old Testament is that of Abraham. Abraham was called of God to go to another land. And God tells us, and we'll, we'll read a little bit about the promise of God to Abram, but uh, Abram and his descendants were well blessed, particularly when they got into the land that God had provided for, for them, the land of Canaan. And uh, he and his son Isaac, and then following on Jacob, were blessed also. Obviously, there were bits of hiccups along the way because uh, the natural tendency of things of disobedience and sinfulness got in the way. But whilst they were obedient to, to the word of God, God blessed them immensely. And Israel, we know, had 12 sons and the tribe of Israel was born from that particular family. And then we'll go on and have a look at another illustration that is of the Israelites. The Israelites, of course, were <coughs> came from the, as I just mentioned, from the descendants of Abraham, <clears throat> and God led them into a pleasant land. He led them into Canaan, and, uh, and then the city of Jerusalem provided a, a tabernacle for them and a temple for them, uh, gave them laws and rules to live by, and of course, all everything was great. For a period of time in Cana, everything was good. Uh, good food, good living, and they enjoyed uh, the presence of God. But then the law was broken and uh, things got particular bad. And the only real uh, 
pleasant time after uh, a while was when David and Solomon, the two kings, reigned in the land. It was about 120 odd years then when there was peace in the land uh, uh, for the Israelites. Obviously, there were wars going on um, with David uh, and, and Solomon uh, with the nations around about, but Israel lived in relative peace and comfort. But due to disobedience and rebellion and idolatry, the northern tribes, which had by this time split, that was they were called Israel, they were defeated by the Assyrians. And by the time Jesus came, they'd been uh, kind of uh, incorporated with the Samaritans, and they were known by that time as the Samaritans. The southern tribes, Judah, due to rebellion and, uh, and again, idolatry, they were taken captive by Babylon and taken to uh, away to Babylon, later returning to Jerusalem. They, of course, were known as the Jews, but they never again became the nation that they had once been. A temple was constructed, but it wasn't of the magnitude of the temple that Solomon had erected. And uh, whilst the older ones, uh, whilst the younger ones rejoiced in the fact that they had a new temple, the older people who remembered the old temple, they wept when they saw the difference uh, of the temples. And so things were pretty bad. So the pattern being throughout the Old Testament was that when God's people were obedient to his word, God communed with them, he met with them, and they knew his blessing. When God came in the flesh, uh, the, the, the tribe of Judah and the southern, the southern tribe, you could say, was still in exile. Even though they were back in Jerusalem, uh, they, were, they hadn't heard the voice of God for 400 years during the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The prophets had ceased to, to speak wisdom to, and God's word to the people, and they were bereft of any... Uh, communication with God. So let's move into that. That's just the background of the uh, of the kingdom of God uh, operating in the Old Testament, uh, but limited, of course, because of the disobedient of the tribes. When we get into the New Testament, we come to Matthew 1, and, and straight off there, we have the genealogies. But before the genealogies start, it says that Jesus, the son of King David and Abraham, uh, was there in the, just before the New Testament, that Jesus came along being, and uh, 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 just let me read the words and then I don't get it wrong. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of King David and Abraham. So not only was Jesus a descendant of Abraham and David, but the promises that were given to Abraham and David, uh, not only did Jesus receive, but he fulfilled them. So let's just have a look quickly at those promises which were given to Abraham and to David, because uh, it, if it, 
in effect, uh, Jesus carries on with these promises. The Lord told Abraham, leave your country, your relatives and your father's house and go to the land which I will show you. I will cause you to become the father of a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous and I will make you a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. And then to David, this is what he said to David, 2 Samuel 7 and verse 12 to 16. Now the Lord declares that he will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die, I will raise up one of your descendants and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will establish the throne for his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will use other nations to punish him, but my unfailing love will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your dynasty and your kingdom will continue for all time before me and your throne will be secure forever. Now, obviously, those are that, particularly the second one is a dual prophet, uh, prophecy because it concerned David and Solomon. But there's also a, a, a prophecy concerning Jesus there because David's dynasty and kingdom hasn't continued forever. But of course, speaking of Jesus, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So Jesus came on the scene, in, uh, as we see in the, in the New Testament, to fulfill these promises that were given to Abraham and to David. That his, dynasty, that his dynasty, his kingdom will rule forever. Paul writing to the Corinthians says, God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So the promises given to those Old Testament patriarchs were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. If we move on to Mark's gospel, he begins his gospel by quoting from Malachi and Isaiah. And he says, I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight for him. So here the message is clear. The exile is over. There's somebody come to redeem the children of Israel. The time is ready for fulfillment. But unfortunately, the Jews rejected Jesus, and hence God rejected the Jews. Jesus, shortly afterwards, stands and declares, The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Turn you from your sins and believe this good news. The kingdom of God is here. Why? Because the king was there. As mentioned, the kingdom of God is not a phrase used in the Old Testament, but Jesus often used it in his teaching. It sums up the prophetic hope. He understood that he had come to fulfill all the Old Testament uh, prophecies uh, that they, of what they had pointed forward to. He tells his disciples, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears hear. For I tell you the truth, 
Many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it. Matthew 13, 16 and 17. Speaking of the Old Testament, he said, these are the scriptures that testify about me. You can just picture Jesus, can't you, picking up the scrolls in the temple and saying, these are the, the scriptures that prophesy and testify about me. That's John 5 and verse 39. You see, the Old Testament, although these days we find it difficult to read and difficult to understand in some instances and difficult to understand the, the, the terrors and the horrors that took place in the Old Testament and the, the history of it all, Jesus understood that contained there in the Old Testament scriptures were scriptures that testified about him and confirmed exactly what was expected of him and who he was. They find the fulfillment in Christ, the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament never leads us to expect that there will be any fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies other than in Christ. We're not expected to look for fulfillment in the state of Israel or for uh, uh, expect a new temple to be built to replace the uh, one that was uh, destroyed in AD 70. No re replica of the temple to be found. The permanent reality is to be found in Christ. Graham Goldsworthy puts it like this. The New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament is not literal, but it's Christological. That is to say that the coming of Christ turns all the kingdom terms of the Old Testament into gospel reality. Think of Ezekiel's vision of the river flowing out of the temple. That's going to take some doing if you take it literally, when you bear in mind that Jerusalem set in the Middle East uh, a very uh, arid country. Now, I know that all things are possible in God, but it's a lot easier to explain it if you run it through Jesus Christ, because we'll see a little later on how that does fit in with this principle. Let's just have a look at a moment about the people of God, God's people that we mentioned of earlier. How does Jesus compare? Well, of course, Adam failed in his role as the image of God and was evicted from the garden. God made a new start with the Israelites, who were also uh, called to be holy, a people reflecting his glory, reflecting his character. But as they disobeyed his laws, they too failed and were exiled. Jesus succeeds where they fail. He is what the people of God are meant to be, the true Adam, the true Israel. In fact, the Bible calls Jesus the second Adam. The Bible makes it plain that Jesus is a real human being, born as a baby, sleeps, weeps, gets tired, even dies. He's descended from Adam on his mother's side. But unlike Adam, when tempted, he doesn't sin. He is the only human being who perfectly obeys God, his father, in no way does he ever de uh, deserve to face the torment and the agony of the cross, but he willingly takes the punishment that we all deserve as sinners who are bound up with the first Adam. If we put our trust in him, 
we join a new family, not of Adam, but the sin, but the not of Adam the sinner, but of Jesus, the righteous second Adam. Paul writes to the Romans and says, just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man Christ, the many will be made righteous. We find that in Romans 5 and 19. Jesus then is, is, is also the true Israel. In Matthew's gospel, we are told that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Egypt to protect Jesus from Herod. Matthew states that it fulfills Hosea's prophecy. Out of Egypt, I have called my son. Now, if you look up at the, the, the prophecy in Hosea 11 and verse 1, it was obvious that this prophecy was relating to the children of Israel being brought out of the land of Egypt uh, during the Exodus. But Matthew, uh, he turns it to include Jesus into that prophecy. It's not particularly a messianic prophecy, but, it, but uh, Matthew wanted to connect Jesus with the Israelites. Uh, and so the context of Hosea is for a national uh, prophecy, but Matthew turns it to an individual prophecy. He must have wanted to identify Jesus was with Israel. However, Jesus is different to the Old Testament Israel. Oh, yes, he was tempted just like them in the wilderness, but he didn't fall like they did. Matthew 4, uh, you can read of that temptation. Then Jesus calls his first disciples, 12 of them. I don't believe it's a coincidence that he chose 12 disciples. He is forming a new Israel, not with 12 tribes, but with 12 men as his basic framework. The old Israel rejects Jesus and in turn is rejected by God. Jesus says the kingdom of God will be taken from you and be given to people who will produce its fruit. Matthew 21, verse 43. Jesus foretold the destruction of the temple in Luke uh, 19 and verses 43. And we have to see what that, that, that did happen, as we've mentioned earlier, that the, the temple, the, the centerpiece of the Israelites' uh, cre uh, worship um, was taken from them. Israel now not focused, uh, is now not focused on Palestine or the state of Israel or Abram's natural descendants, the Jews alone. It is made up of Jews and Gentiles alike who have the, the faith of Abraham and have put their trust in the New Testament Israel, who is, of course, Jesus. We are in Christ by the grace of God and through faith, Romans 4 tells us. Let's have a look at the place. You remember that God 
uh, met with them in various places, particularly the Garden of Eden, the tabernacle and the temple. And uh, we remember that <clears throat> these people enjoyed the presence of God when they were in communion with him. However, these are just shadows of what we can receive in Christ. He is the true temple and we can enter right into the presence of God. Although he is fully human, he is also fully God. And so we don't need to look for a building to worship him. He is the one who has come down and who dwells within us. We have instant communion if we are a child of God and have put our trust in the king. Jesus is our tabernacle also. 1 John 1.14, uh, sorry, John 1.14 says the word, which Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. That can be translated or tabernacled with us. Simply means that his presence is with us because he came down and dwelt amongst us. Jesus is the true temple. After an altercation with the Jews, some Jews challenged Jesus regarding his authority. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. John tells us that he wasn't talking about the temple, which you were obviously standing in, but he was talking about his own body. He was talking about his death and his resurrection. Destroy this temple, this body, the temple that you're looking at. And in three days, it will be resurrected. If we are in God's family, we don't need a building to meet him. He is closer than I am to you right at this moment. John goes on to tell us about Jesus standing in the temple courts and calling out, this is on another occasion, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. John 7, verses 37 and 38. Surely this is a picture of what we were talking about earlier, Ezekiel's temple. Jesus is saying that he is the temple. He is the, the, the vision of the water spilling out from the temple. Jesus is saying that if we believe in him and receive him, then out of our innermost beings will fall this river of living, living water. It will flow from him to us. And if, of course, Jesus explains in John there that he was talking about the spirit of God. And so Jesus is the temple. <clears throat> Jesus is also, also the author of a new uh, the new covenant. Just a, a little aside before we get on to that. Jesus being the temple, you remember that the temple was where the sacrifices were made and where the atonement for sin was made in the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus being the temple, that is the very place where our sins are also dealt with when we go to him through faith and the grace of God comes into operation. So I'm moving on. Jesus, the author of a new covenant, Matthew 5 and verse 17, we read Jesus' words. I have not come to, to, to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. You remember that when covenants were made, then rules and regulations came into force and the two parties were meant to abide by them. 
And Jesus said, look, I've come, uh, uh, I've come to bring in a new covenant, but I've not come to destroy the old one. I've come to fulfill it. I've come to make sure that it's all in order and to add to it. In fact, he was the only one who could say that. No one else could say that they'd fulfilled the, uh, the Old Testament uh, laws and rules, the law. Uh, he was the only one that could say that because the Bible tells us that we've, we've all sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. And so we've all uh, missed out on God's blessings. Um, but in Galatians 3 and verses 13 and 14, we're told that he died to take the penalty that we deserve so that we might receive the blessings of the new covenant through faith in him. What a tremendous promise. We were destined to receive uh, the, the curse of, of, of the penalty uh, for our shortcomings. But Jesus took them himself. And uh, we now receive the blessings of the covenant through faith in him. That's Galatians 3, 13, 14. Read also Romans 8, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Hebrews 9, 15. For the sake of time, you're not going to read them all this morning, but they're all verses which speak of Jesus being the author of a new uh, covenant, a new agreement whereby he takes on, on himself uh, the, 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 the things that we should have dealt with, the punishment that we should have received. And uh, through faith in him, we receive the blessings of God instead. Jesus is the new king. You remember how I said that the, the, the people, the children of Israel prospered under the kingship of David and, um, and Solomon. It wasn't that David and Solomon were, were, were uh, a, a void of sin. They, they, they were sinners just as much as you and I were. In fact, David committed adultery and also was uh, the instigator of uh, Bathsheba's um, uh, husband. The, de the death of Bathsheba's husband. And, but David had a heart after God. And God said that David had, had this, this lovely heart, which was, was, was out to God. He was totally repentant when he, when he did fail. And, and, and God uh, blessed David and Solomon and the children of Israel because uh, of their obedience to his commands. And so Jesus is the new king. And we can, and he brings the blessings that come with it. Is it any wonder that Jesus spoke constantly about the kingdom of God? Because the king had arrived. Matthew 12 and verse 28. He says, if I am casting out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived amongst you. Jesus never laboured the point, in fact, that he was king. He spoke a lot about the kingdom of God. But he didn't elevate himself to uh, and mention, you know, it didn't constantly boast that he was the king. In fact, Paul reminds us in Philippians 2 that he did the very opposite. He humbled himself. He made himself nothing. He became a slave. He took on human form. He even came to earth from his heavenly throne. And then eventually he died a criminal's death on a cross. Paradoxically, 
that was his greatest victory. When people look at Jesus and that's, see that, that, think that that was his weakest point, it was actually his greatest victory because it was there that he de defeated the powers of the devil, darkness, and he set his people free. Coloss uh, Colossians 2, verses 13 and 15. You can read verses which will substantiate that. So Jesus is the source of God's blessing. He says, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11 and verses 28. You know, rest was what, the children, what Adam and Eve enjoyed with God in the garden. God created uh, the earth in six days, and then on the seventh, he rested. And it was during this period that, uh, Adam, uh, that Adam and Eve enjoyed the presence of God and communion with him. Until, of course, uh, they were disobedient. There is, there is, Israelites saw something about the rest uh, that God presented them with when they reached Canaan. And that, uh, they enjoyed that for uh, a number of years until, of course, they dis disappointed God and disobeyed his commandments, started wor worshipping, looking for other gods whom they could serve. And of course, you must remember that sin isn't always doing things wrong. It's just being, it, it, it's putting other things in, in place of God, idolatry. <coughs> we too can find rest in our savior, far greater than ever before, far greater than Adam knew, far greater than the Israelites know, because we're resting in one who knows and who has come to give us rest, come to give us peace. Rest doesn't just mean doing nothing. It means a release of all the cares, the problems, the anxieties and the stresses of life. It means being free to just uh, enjoy life with Christ in the center. When Jesus defeated death and rose again, he introduced a new lifestyle. He said, I am come that you might have life and have it to the full. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17. What a savior. What a king. You know, many times when we read the scriptures, we're looking for something that will help us through the day, something that will bolster us up, something that will strengthen us, something that will give us courage. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. If you're feeling depressed and down, that, that's the very place to go. But sometimes when we look at scriptures, we don't need to look, just look for ourselves. We need to read the scriptures to learn more about God, to draw us closer to him because he's the fountain of life. What a savior. What a king. What a kingdom. The kingdom of God. This morning, I want to ask you, are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? No one deserves, no one is, uh, deserves to be a, a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's not, it's not something that uh, we work to. It's not something that we have to pay for. It's a gift. It's a gift of God. You know, I'm a citizen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I became a citizen by birth. 
just thinking about that, I'm not so sure just how united it is at this present time. Uh, it seems as though everybody wants to be off doing their own thing. But nevertheless, I'm a citizen of the United Kingdom and Great Britain, Northern Ireland. I was born, I was born here in Bury, not moved far in, uh, in the 70, well, 70 years that I've been alive. Um, now, how did I come up, uh, how do you become then a citizen of the kingdom of, of God? Well, it's exactly the same. You become a citizen of God by birth. You've got to have a relationship with the king. You see, he tells us, uh, and he first told Nicodemus in, in John 3, he said, you must be born again, not of the flesh, not of flesh and blood, but by my spirit. And that's how we become citizens of the kingdom of God. And what a kingdom it is. This morning, friends, I trust that if you're not a citizen of the kingdom, then that you will read John 3 and see what Jesus had to say to Nicodemus. You'll find it in the New Testament. And of course, uh, a great future is awaiting you if you become a citizen of the kingdom of God. The Lord bless you this week. I trust that you enjoy being in God's presence as you enjoy fellowship with one another and fellowship with him. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning for this privilege of looking at your word. We remember that Jesus was your word, was the word. And if we're obedient to him, then blessings will flow. It's a principle that's been set there throughout the, the scripture. And we pray this morning, our Heavenly Father, that we'll be obedient to Jesus, to his word, and that we'll enjoy being citizens of the kingdom of God until we see that day when we see it in all its fullness. We appreciate that as we pray, let your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that we haven't seen the full extent of your kingdom because it's still marred here on earth with the disobedience and the desires of people to do their own thing. But we pray, our Heavenly Father, that as we fix our gaze on you, that your kingdom will be in full focus, that you'll give us revelation of what to expect when we meet you face to face. And until that day, our Heavenly Father, accept our thanks for Jesus and all he's done for us and all he means to us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.